This is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. For more than 60 years, humans have been using specifically trained dogs to detect explosives. And this is such a ubiquitous part of our world these days that travelers, they don't even notice that police canines are moving through airports, sniffing passengers and their belongings, all in search of potential weapons. But bomb-sniffing dogs are expensive to train and to maintain, and their effectiveness decreases as they become tired or bored. So what would be a cheaper and easier method? What would be even more effective than a dog, potentially? Well, according to a recent study, insects could. And specifically, we're talking about locusts, those biblical bugs that, when swarming, can do a lot of damage to crops. The researchers in Barani Rahman's lab at Washington University in St. Louis are focused on understanding the design and computing principles of biological sensory systems using the relatively simple but highly perceptive olfactory systems of invertebrates. The lab's latest study published in the journal Biosensors and Bioelectronics may pave the way for an era in which dogs are replaced by bomb-sniffing cyborg locusts in airports around the world. Barani Rahman, thanks for being here. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for having me on this particular program, and thanks for the very kind and generous introduction. It's been a little more than a century since Alexander Graham Bell observed that it is really difficult to scientifically measure a smell. And in fact, he posed this as a challenge. He said, if you're ambitious to find a new science, you should measure a smell. And and people tried and largely failed for decades. And even today, this is still a very frontline area of research. What is it that drew you to this subject? So uh, as a PhD student, I actually got my degree in computer engineering. And the goal of the project was to create an electronic nose, meaning a chemical sensing system inspired by the biological sense of smell. And uh, this project, I think, turned out to be extremely humbling. We couldn't do with commercial sensors what we can do what, what the biological organisms, relatively simple ones, such as insects and, and that too, even extremely simple ones like fruit flies and locusts can do. So naturally, this raises a question. I think it just goes back to the code that you mentioned. Can we measure? So what is it about smell that is so enigmatic, that is so difficult to understand? While at the same time, we do it on a daily basis, right? So the smell of coffee, we smell in a coffee shop. We do it without whether there is a background chemical present or not, whether it's morning or afternoon or evening, whether it's a hot day or a cold day, whether it's a windy day or a not so windy day, whether you smell it in Alaska or whether you smell it in St. Louis, it doesn't matter. So it's a pretty amazingly robust that allows you often as a first line of defense to understand what's in your environment. Was it the mystery around it that really drew you in? I mean, we've got this amazing, robust system, as you say, but like, what was it about that system that you went, aha, that's what I want to dedicate my life to? Yeah, so I think, as I said, for several, for I think the first concept of electronic mimicking biological sense of smell uh, started in 1980s. And it's been now 40 years and we don't still have a system that works relatively simple organisms such as an insect can do. And I think it's one of the more poorly understood sensory system also compared to, we know, we know a lot about our vision, visual system, the auditory sense, but I think the, even the gustatory sense we understand quite a bit, but olfaction, I think it's much more challenging. So the question naturally becomes, again, why is it so difficult? Why can't we replicate this particular sensory system alone? If you look at small insects to big organisms, dogs, mice, humans, we have a strikingly similar kind of an architecture, both anatomical and functional. 
So there should be some conserved principles. It seems like biology found a solution and it has replicated everywhere. Why can't we understand that particular solution? What are the big hurdles that need to be overcome or maybe initially needed to be overcome to bridge the divide between natural and man-made smelling systems? What were the questions that you needed to answer first? I think the biggest challenge, I think, uh, in terms of understanding the sense of smell begins right at the periphery where the chemical molecules interact with olfactory receptors. So this process is not fully understood yet. So we know that there's a large family of proteins that actually help in converting the chemical cues into electrical signal, but it is still not clear what are the operational principles here. So we do not know what the inputs are to the system. So how that actually, from right from there, it's actually downhill, right? So if you don't understand what the input is, how are we going to understand what is going to happen next? Right. What drew you to saying, I'm going to challenge this question with locusts and fruit flies? But my PhD work was to replicate this sense of smell with uh, engineered sensors. And it was a very humbling experience. But I think uh, one of the things that you learn while you do PhD is to be persistent, right? So, so I decided, okay, if we cannot do as well as what these insects can do, let's try to understand them. I don't want to actually focus on complex organisms because you need to crawl before you walk, walk before you run. So let's focus on extremely simple organism. See if you can understand that well enough. And if you do, then we can replicate that into an engineering system. This is what I said to myself 10 years back when I started my lab, uh, 15 years back when I started my postdoctoral work. So I thought it could be done in the next 10 years, but here I am after 15 years following this particular line of pursuit and still, I think, finding new fascinating stuff, but nowhere close to replicating what biology has to offer. The challenge of this, the promise of this technology, if we can get it right, would lead to all sorts of applications. What got you thinking about the question of explosive detection? So right from the time I started my lab, I think my lab was funded by Office of Naval Research. So uh, in, initially, we were focusing on developing semiconducting metal oxide-based chemi-resistor technology for these kinds of applications, uh, for smelling explosives. Of course, the explosives and toxic chemicals and those kinds of applications come from the funding organization that funds me. We have continued this line of pursuit because of that particular funding that comes to my lab. Now, we have a long relationship communicating with dogs who have long done this sort of thing, they can also give us clues about what they are thinking based on, you know, their body mechanics and, and barking. We don't have that relationship with locusts. So in order to do this work, well, you first needed a system that could detect what a locust was thinking. Can you talk a little bit about this previously developed biorobotic sensing system that you use for this study? Sure. I think let me parse it down into two questions. And then I'll answer them both separately. So first you said, okay, we know how to read dogs' output, their behavior. We don't know how to read the insect behavior, right? So actually, we can read what the insects can smell also. So just like how we can train dogs, we can train an insect. People have shown with honeybees that actually their straw-like organ that is in the mouth, it's called the proboscis. They will extend this proboscis when they are trained in a particular fashion. The way they do this is actually you give a puff of odor followed by sugar water. And if you do it enough time, the honeybees learn to associate that particular sensory input, chemical cue, order, an odor with the reward, which is basically how they extend their straw-like structure proboscis to receive the reward. And in this fashion, even honeybees can actually inform that they have recognized a particular smell on which they are trained upon. 
The same thing also works with fruit flies and also with locusts. And we have done previous work showing some of the capabilities that these uh, locusts have. Uh, having said that, locust sensors, again, what you read is a behavioral reader. It's not necessary, first of all, that an organism can associate any input with any output. What I mean by that is, yeah, so this is an appetitive conditioning, meaning you are associating a chemical with a food odor. If the odor that you're providing is extremely bad for the organism, it may not like to learn the association between that particular odor, chemical, and the food reward. So there are some challenges in doing this. So that's the first question. So now the second question. So about the biorobotics, right? So how do you do it differently? What we said was, let's not look at the behavioral output, which can be quite confusing because there can be so many different other sensory input that can be competing for producing a behavioral output. What we instead said was, let's just go straight into the brain of these insects, implant electrodes there, and read the neural signals from a particular olfactory region so we do not have any confusion about what exactly it is smelling in its environment. I want to stop here for a minute because this is so fascinating. What does that look like going inside the brain of an insect? Like, how do you even go about doing that? Because this is micro-micro-surgery, right? Correct. So it is a surgery. And truth be told, again, we were not the first people to invent these kinds of surgeries. Neuroscientists have been using these kinds of uh, surgeries for ages now. Uh, There, the goal is to study what a particular neuron is tuned to or what is the function of it. How does it connect to the other neurons in the same neural circuit? How do different neural circuits talk to each other? How do they finally drive behavior? And they have so many other questions which are more fundamental science level. So what we said was, okay, let's not only look at the neuroscience aspects of things, because neuroscience has given all these tools, let's just apply them for an engineering application. That's the only thing that we did a little bit different. Otherwise, the tools that we used are pretty standard in practice. And are these just like little miniature wires or probes that go in? Do you actually get to sit in yourself on these these little surgeries? Do you participate? Yeah, no, I think I have done surgeries enough uh, while I was a postdoc as well as when I started my own lab. So now my graduate students do this on a routine basis. So the two antennas that you see on their insect head, that's basically where the chemical sensors of factory receptor neurons are present. What we do is we take a small piece of the exoskeleton or cuticle between the antennae. So uh, that is, uh, we make a small incision, remove that. Underneath that, there are lots of air sacs. So there is no blood in insects. They only have a hemolymph, which is very analogous. It's not red in color. So you, you don't see anything gushing out like what you see in a mammalian system. And then what we do is we use forceps and also a little bit of a suctioning to remove these air sacs and fat bodies that are present and cover the brain. Once we expose the brain, then what we do is uh, this brain, again, there is this kind of a, how we have blood-brain barrier for our brain. There is also blood-brain barriers here. And there is also like you have a dura, which covers the brain and vertebrate system, you have a kind of a sheath, a transparent sheath that covers the brain. You use the enzyme to weaken these sheets and pull them apart and rupture it. And only after that, we can implant electrodes into the brain. This is so very small and delicate. I imagine you have to have a very steady hand to do this. Yeah, so because I transitioned from computer science to this particular field, it took me a longer time to actually learn these skills. But my graduate students do it much faster than me. I I tell them if I can do it, they can definitely do it. (laughs) You know, even though this technology is quite amazing, this was sort of a shot in the dark because even though you knew that locusts had really good abilities to detect smells, they obviously hadn't evolved to sniff for explosives. That's not in the natural spectrum of the smells that they needed to be able to discern. 
I think that's a hypothesis that we were testing out. So in 2016, when we said we'll use the insects directly as sensors for sensing explosives, it was a hypothesis that we said that they have sensors that are pretty broad spectrum and that can be used for sensing any molecule, even those that may not be of relevance to them ecologically. So you can, you can expect that a swarm of locusts is not going to care about a TNT or a DNT. So uh, it took subsequent systematic studies to show, in fact, there are neurons in the brain that respond to TNT and DNT uh, or any other molecule that could throw at them. And uh, in some sense, it's kind of very similar to how our nose works too, right? So let's say you have a tropical country which you have never been to. There's a fruit that you have never smelled before in your life. If I blindfold you, place the fruit in front of you, you will still say it's fruity, even though the chemical composition of the fruit may be slightly different compared to anything that you have ever smelled before. So in that sense, it's a fascinating sense how it can generalize to anything and everything you throw at them. That's the capability of the biological system that we have directly exploited in this particular study. Through this, they're not just telling us, you know, yes, this is an explosive and no, this is not an explosive, but these neurons can even indicate what kind of explosive it is based on, well, based on which neurons are firing, right? So that's correct. So I think a single neuron by itself may not give you a clear information. But if you actually record from a group of them, then depending upon which subset of neurons fire and how they fire, we can interpret them and match them onto a specific chemical as well as the concentration of a particular chemical, concentration range. So that's, that's actually is very well known as in, the, in neuroscience. And that's basically what has been exploited here in this particular study. And the maps that you create of these neurons firing and what they relate to, they're pretty similar from insect to insect? Huh. So I think it's difficult to answer how similar to insects are in terms of how they smell, very similar to how we have our own idiosyncratic preferences. What we can do is that for there is a map that exists in every single one of these insects, we just have to learn them. When you realized that locust could discern explosives sense and and when you realize that they could discern individual explosive sense that must have been a really exhilarating moment yeah no i think the first time we saw the result play out and uh, see individual neurons that respond uh, more to tnt or dnt or kind of stopped firing because of tnt and dnt which was a pretty cool and exciting result so the first time, so we have a rule of thumb. So until somebody repeats the same experiment two or three times, we don't believe it. So because I think uh, there are lots of experimental errors that can actually can creep in. But we could repeat this reliably again and again and again. So which kind of convinced us, yes, this is valid. This is the kind of way to proceed. And it was pretty fascinating to be able to uncover that. And this happens quickly within their brains, right? And within our ability to detect it, like the locust can detect the smell and we can get an indication of that detection in just milliseconds? Yeah, I think a few hundred milliseconds is enough to actually distinguish between different chemicals. And this, again, has been shown before in neuroscience. It seems applicable to any cue you throw at them, which is basically what we have exploited here. So there's still a problem, though, because... Just being able to detect a smell isn't enough. If you know, if you want to stop a bomb, you need to know where it is. And this is my favorite part of the study, and I imagine this has got to be everybody's favorite part of the study. Talk about the locust mobile. <laughs> so yeah, I think as you said, right? So uh, there are a couple of challenges. I think I'll tell you the experiments we have done. I'll, we can also talk about what needs to be done or challenges that still remain. So yeah, of course, we want to not only know what the chemical is in the environment, but where it is. 
So just for the same reason, you want to know that your grandma or your mom has baking cookies, but you also need to know where exactly is the cookie going to be kept, right? So otherwise, that particular smell of cookies is of no use to you. So what we did no, was... No, it's worse than no use. You know it's there and you can't get to it. That's true. That is true. Yeah. So yeah, it, you need to be able to know where the smell is stronger, right? So as you go closer and closer to the kitchen, the smell of cookie gets stronger and stronger. So that's basically what we call it as a concentration gradient and gradient ascent, meaning that as you go closer to the source, the amount of chemical present is more. And this more or less, whether that some particular chemical is more or some chemical is less, can be understood by approaching it or moving away from it. And to, uh, to validate this fully, what we did was we implanted, made a surgery on these locusts, put, the, put electrodes into their brain, covered them up, gave them a backpack, and then put them on a robot. And then we moved around in an environment where we know precisely what the concentration gradients were. And here again, as you would expect, this is again uh, intuitive what you would expect. As we got closer to the that particular region of the arena where there were more chemicals, we got more response. The pattern of the neural responses tells you the identity of that particular odorant, and the intensity or the strength of the response tells you where the concentration is more. And together, we should be able to combine these two pieces of information to be able to localize where a particular cue is coming from. How much fun is it to have a job where you can say, we need to test something, let's make a little car and a backpack for a locust? I think that's a perk of being in academia and being a scientist, right? So you get to do experiments that you can only dream of, nobody else has thought about, and you can be the first one to discover whether it pans out or not. And uh, you can also be the first one to actually share that excitement with people that you are training with. And also phenomenal set of people, young kids and students and at all levels, at all ages, and share the excitement with them. So it's unbelievable part of being part of an academia and academic culture in the United States. So obviously being able to detect bombs is, you know, this is interesting, and it's an important application for this technology. But I imagine there are lots of other ways to use what you've learned here. How do you envision this being used potentially in the future beyond beyond bomb-sniffing cyborg insects? So there are different reasons why we did this. I think this application of explosive sensing is one of them. So one of the things we can also do is actually go back to basic science. So now we are actually, instead of having the, typically what we do studies in unrealistic lab settings, we can in fact do studies in fields or even in much more complex environments that have not been done before. So that would allow us to actually take these new tools and ask different kinds of questions which we have not asked. But every single question that you ask is kind of a different perspective compared to asking whether how this particular neuron would respond and why they would respond in a certain way. So now actually you're doing a kind of a different kind of an approach, different kind of a perspective, even to approach science. But otherwise, in terms of application, like there are so many different kinds of application that depends on us able to reliably pick out chemical cues. There have been reports even recently, right, so about Dogs being able to be, you can train the dogs to sniff out and distinguish between breath samples collected from COVID-19 patients compared to controls. So there are markers. Whenever you have a change in metabolism in your body, there is a change in the composition of the exhaled breath that comes up. For example, a diabetic is known to have a sweet-smelling ketone breath. So the question is, can we make chemical sensing systems that are sensitive, not only for defense application, but also for biomedical, environmental and so many other uh, kinds of applications. Those are all kind of open challenges in the field. And we want to actually, uh, I don't want to say we are going to use a locus to actually uh, in all this application, but the goal is to understand enough about the biological system 
that we can actually start abstracting principles. For this study, you used the American grasshopper, which is one of just dozens of species that are members of the genus known as Schiscocerca. And of course, there are a lot more invertebrates out there to be studied that could be studied. What other species would you like to examine in this way to see if they have an ability to help us understand this very little known part of our sensory world? There are so many popular model organisms. It's the term that is being used in neuroscience, basic science studies is model organism. The popular model organisms are fruit flies, honeybees. And I think each of them actually, the olfactory systems have are striking similarities. There are some differences, but I think they are more similar than different. And I think as you correctly mentioned, there are so many different subspecies within this particular genus. So this is just a kind of a tip of an iceberg. Underlying question is, can we even understand how a very simple organism, a fruit fly or a mosquito or a locust, how does their brain work? Because without that, trying to understand much more complex organisms is going to be even more challenging. You started out on the sensors side of this, and, and then you gradually embraced the, the biological side of this. You, you used the word earlier humility. I got to figure that the more you learn about how these these organisms do what they do, the more you must just be in awe of the fact that they have evolved so perfectly to do these things. And we're still a very long way away. Yeah, no, I have to quote something what my colleague used to say, you're still in our diapers in terms of understanding what's going on, right? So what we know is very little. What we don't know is so much. So, but modern tools, I think, uh, has, have enabled us to actually probe certain questions, historical questions, which have been asked before, tens of years before, but with kind of technological throughput that have never been possible before. So that opens up possibilities to asking the same questions, but actually with a, a different kinds of tools and finding different solutions. That's one particular trend that is quite popular in neuroscience these days. So if you really want to make an engineer humble, ask him to create a flying, a complete robot that can simulate what a fruit fly can do. We cannot do that. They're endowed with so many different kinds of sensors. They are endowed with such a repertoire of behavior, uh, behavioral complexity. We, again, they are self-sufficient. They are energy efficient. It's kind of it's fascinating to be able to even ask these questions and uh, take a small peek or a small uh, step in terms of understanding how a simple biological organism works. You mentioned how fortunate we are right now to have some modern tools to ask these questions with. What are the tools that aren't out there yet that you would really like to get your hands on in the future to continue moving this area of science forward? If all my wishes were to come true, then ideally I would like to know how every single neuron fires and how they are connected in relation with each other and also be able to track their behavioral responses, not just on a single day or a single week, but during their entire lifetime. So these are kinds of tools that are not there right now. Whatever we do is quite invasive. Even though we call it minimally invasive, it still compromises the organism a little bit. So improving surgical processes, even if you don't understand everything, if you can start probing in that particular direction, those kinds of tools would be phenomenal. Your career has been spent studying ways to better understand a very little understood sense that we share with invertebrates. I'm wondering how your research 
impacts the way you think about your sensory experience with the world? So the way I think about this is the following. So I think if you remember, the questions that you and I asked when we were five-year-olds, the why questions, those are the most difficult to answer. So similarly, even in these simple organisms, asking simple why questions doesn't even have to be that complex or uh, philosophical basic questions. Those are extremely hard and humbling to answer. And that actually tells you how much we know in the first place. And second, I think it kind of it tells you that whatever is the challenge, there's also an opportunity. It also provides the opportunity or for future generation of scientists to be able to see these challenges and say, and be inspired by it, not uh, daunted by it, but inspired by it to take not all of them on, but maybe you bite based on how, you, how much you can chew kind of a thing. So where you can actually take a small bite at it or a, a shot at it and keep pushing the frontiers of what we know. So hopefully, I think that's basically what we want to do. And also, we want to be in the comfort of repeating what others have done, the, not a low-hanging fruit. But I think at some point, stepping outside the comfort zone and doing something which is crazy enough that actually can give you some important new insights. That's Barani Rahman. He is an associate professor in the Department of Biomedical Engineering at Washington University in St. Louis. And his team's article on building bomb-sniffing cyborg insects was recently published in the journal Biosensors and Bioelectronics. Barani, thank you. No, thanks, Matt. Thanks for having me on the program. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio, and if you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us every Thursday at 10.30 a.m. on UPR. If you miss us, then you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Our producer is Naomi Ward. Our associate producer is Mia Dora. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot, and I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas. <laughs>